first steps in classic spirituality under the tutelage of a lay mystic who forms young men into living rosary groups. His father dies and the young man's vocational struggle intensifies. Is his destiny the stage or the altar? He eventually enrolls in the clandestine seminary run by the heroic Archbishop of Krakow, an aristocrat who serves Hans Frank the people's diet of stale bread and ersatz coffee when the haughty Nazi governor-general insists on being invited to dine at the Episcopal manse. Surreptitiously studying philosophy and theology at the chemical factory where he still works, the seminarian lives from day to day in a world where yesterday's classmate and fellow altar server becomes tomorrow's martyr to the firing squads. In the aftermath of the Warsaw Uprising, the Nazis tried to forestall a similar eruption of overt resistance by arresting all the young men in Krakow. Our protagonist dodges the Gestapo manhunts, works his way across town, and enters the bishop's residence, where the clandestine seminary is reformed underground. After his country's liberation by the Red Army, he is ordained a priest and sent to Rome for graduate studies in theology. Returning home after a look at the worker priests of France and Belgium, he begins a ministry to university students that involves innovative worship, intense conversation, thousands of hours in the confessional, and a sharp break from the typical pattern of interaction between Polish priests and their people. After completing a second doctoral degree, he joins the faculty of the only Catholic university behind the Iron Curtain, commuting to his classes by overnight train. His lectures are packed by standing-room-only crowds. His first book, On the Ethics of Married Life, raises more than one clerical eyebrow by its celebration of human sexuality as a gift of God for the sanctification of husband and wife. Consecrated a bishop at age 38, he is elected administrator of the Krakow Archdiocese when the incumbent dies and the government and church deadlock on a new appointment. Attending all four sessions of the Second Vatican Council from 1962 through 1965, he becomes a leader in crafting a new Catholic openness to the modern world and a mainstay in the great conciliar battle to define religious freedom as a basic human right. Named Archbishop of Krakow with the enthusiastic support of the communist government, he causes consternation among the commissars who promoted his nomination by becoming a relentless, sophisticated advocate for the religious and other civil rights of his people. While conducting one of the most extensive implementations of Vatican II in the world, the archbishop, who is named Cardinal at age 47, refuses to behave the way senior prelates are supposed to behave. He skis, he vacations with lay people, he kayaks. He also remains a working intellectual, leading doctoral seminars in his residence and delivering scholarly papers at international conferences. At 58, he is elected the 264th Bishop of Rome, the first non-Italian Pope in 455 years and the first Slavic Pope ever. KGB leader Yuri Andropov warns the Soviet Politburo of danger ahead, and his judgment is vindicated when the Polish Pope returns to his homeland in June 1979 and triggers the revolution of conscience that eventually produces the non-violent collapse of the Soviet Empire in East Central Europe. 
The Slav Pope dramatically revitalizes the world's oldest institution, the papacy, through pastoral pilgrimages to every corner of the globe, through an aggressive exploitation of every modern means of communication, and through an endless stream of teaching documents that touch virtually every aspect of Catholic life, as well as the most crucial questions on the world's agenda. He survives an assassination attempt, redefines the Catholic Church's relationship with Judaism, describes marital intimacy as an icon of the interior life of the triune God. After he faces a series of medical difficulties, the world media pronounce him a dying, if heroic, has-been. Within the next six months, he publishes an international bestseller translated into 40 languages, gathers the largest crowd in human history on the least Christian continent in the world, urges the church to cleanse its conscience on the edge of a new millennium, and almost single-handedly changes the course of a major international meeting on population issues. Addressing the United Nations in 1995, he defends the universality of human rights and describes himself as a witness to hope at the end of a century of unprecedented wickedness. Two days later, the irrepressible pontiff does a credible imitation of Jack Benny during Mass in Central Park, and the cynical New York press loves it. As fiction, the story would be too sensational for all but the most romantic tastes. What, then, are we to make of the story as fact? And how can we understand this thoroughly modern man who insists that in the designs of providence there are no mere coincidences? The pontificate of Pope John Paul II has been one of the most important in centuries for the Church and the world. Some would argue that John Paul II has been the most consequential pope since the Reformation and Counter-Reformation in the 16th century. As that period defined the Catholic Church's relationship to an emerging modern world, so the Second Vatican Council and the pontificate of John Paul II have laid down a set of markers that will likely determine the course of world Catholicism well beyond modernity and into the third millennium of Christian history. John Paul II has also been, indisputably, the most visible pope in history. In fact, a case can be made that he has been the most visible human being in history. He has almost certainly been seen live by more people than any man who ever lived. When one adds the multiplying impact of television to the equation, the breadth of his reach into the worlds within worlds of humanity becomes almost impossible to grasp. Yet there is a paradox here. This most visible of men may also be the least understood major figure of the 20th century. Certainly the judgments about the man and his accomplishment have been, to put it gently, contradictory. To tens of millions of people, many of whom are not Roman Catholics, he is the great figure of our time, the defender and principal embodiment of a moral force that has led humanity safely through this bloodiest of centuries. In this view, John Paul II is the paladin, the champion of the cause of human freedom. To others, including many in his own church, John Paul II is an unyielding authoritarian, out of touch with the aspirations of those he claims to lead and dares to teach, a throwback to a period the church had putatively put behind it at the Second Vatican Council. Still others, within and without the church, 
admire his defense of human rights, his outreach to Judaism, and his dedication to peace, while deploring his theology and his moral judgments. Time named him Man of the Year in 1994. Mikhail Gorbachev, who might have been expected to take a somewhat rueful view of the matter, declared that John Paul II was indispensable to the peaceful conclusion of the Cold War. Fidel Castro remarked privately that his first meeting with John Paul II was like being with family. Those who work with him on a daily basis, even those who disagree with certain of his decisions or with his method of conducting the papacy, unanimously testify to his personal sanctity, his kindness, and his seemingly limitless capacity to listen. Yet journalists of wide experience and historians of literary distinction have heaped opprobrium on him. Why has this most visible of public figures never come into clear focus? Why do the judgments on his accomplishment vary so wildly? Several reasons, although touching the surface of the problem, are still significant. In the first instance, Pope John Paul II has always been a man with a deeply ingrained sense of privacy and has only recently begun to reveal certain aspects of his early life and development in published autobiographical reflections. Carol Wojtyla's mysticism is another factor in his reticence. As with other mystics, it is likely that he would find it virtually impossible to describe his deepest religious experiences, which make him the man he is. Those who have heard Pope John Paul II groaning in prayer before morning mass in his private chapel know that there is a dimension of Carol Wojtyla's life in which God is his sole companion and interlocutor in a conversation literally beyond words. John Paul's Polishness has also been a barrier to his being understood in the West. Poles may be